Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alexander Schmieding and you're listening to From Vision to Creation, a podcast that dives deep into the minds of visionaries who pursued their passions and made their visions a reality. On each episode, we will have conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, industry leaders, and business owners, and we'll explore the mindset that fueled their desire to take their dreams from vision to creation. This podcast is brought to you by Proper Placement, a full-service marketing agency that can help promote your business through social media marketing, paid advertising, email marketing, and more. Find out how we can help grow your business at properplacement.com. At Proper Placement, we don't have clients. We have partners. Welcome to another episode of From Vision to Creation, where we embark on the remarkable journeys of visionaries who have turned their dreams into reality. Today, we have the privilege of introducing you to a man whose family's legacy spans over a century, a visionary whose innovation and dedication have left an indelible mark on the food distribution industry. Tama's story begins over a century ago when Will Sorrow's father embarked on a journey that would ultimately shape the destiny of their family. Will's father immigrated to the United States from Italy when he was only 18 years old. After arriving in America on Ellis Island, he traveled west to California where he joined the ranks of Tama, a modest food distribution company at the time. Little did anyone know that this would be the humble genesis of a legacy that still thrives today, an astonishing 102 years later. Now, in the fourth generation of the Sorrow family, Tama continues to flourish, a testament to the enduring spirit of entrepreneurship, vision, and hard work. But that's just the beginning of the story. Will Sorrow brought innovation and transformation to the American culinary landscape, taking his family business to the stratosphere. Will introduced wildly popular products to the United States market, forever changing the way we experience food. Will introduced Barilla Pasta, Nutella, and the refreshing San Benedetto water to the U.S. market, igniting the taste buds of a nation. Today, we have the privilege of delving into the inspiring journey of Will Sorrow, a man whose vision, determination, and foresight continue to shape the food industry at large. Join us as we explore how one family's legacy, spanning over a century, has become an enduring testament to the power of vision and creation. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome, Alex, and it's a pleasure being with you. I've been really looking forward to this interview because what you have been able to build, Will, is fascinating. And maybe I think the best way to start this conversation will be to just jump right into Tama. And I know your father got started at Tama before you did. So can you tell us a little bit about what that would look like and how he got started? Well, I'll go right down to the start, start of the whole thing, Alex, and uh, start with my father migrating to this country out of Italy and coming into the country, and he was 18 years old and landed in Ellis Island. From there, he came across the United States to California and found himself over here at 18 years old. No job, no money, uh, did not have the language. Things were very, very hard for him. He was looking for work, and in Los Angeles, 
he was wandering around and he went to a section near the city hall where they had a pool hall that was loaded with a whole bunch of Italians playing pool in there. And he stopped and uh, asked one of the men there if they knew of any work that could be had, if anybody was willing to hire and what have you. And the fellow's name, his name was Angelo Russo. And Angelo told my father, uh, well, they're starting up a new company down there, down the block, and maybe they need somebody to drive a truck, a warehouse man, or something like that. My father went down there, and it was the first day that Tama opened up, and he applied for the job, which they hired him. Wow, so that was Tama's actual first day, and he started on the first day Tama was started. Exactly. Okay. He was at Tama, and he drove a truck for Tama. He worked in the warehouse. He was the only active employee they had there. And uh, he stayed at Tama for quite a little while. About six months he was there and was doing very well there, and they were very happy with him because he was the one that was bringing in some business because along with being the driver and a warehouse man, he was also the salesman for them. And so... He had an offer to go up to San Francisco and uh, work in San Francisco. So he was thinking about taking that job. Well, when he let the owners of Tama know that he was getting ready to leave, they did not want him to go. So as an uh, result, and wanting to keep him, they gave him 25 shares, the incentive to keep him there working there, and he got 25 shares out of 400 shares that were in the company. So it was just a, something to keep him. And so he stayed there, and one of the conditions that he put in there when he did this is that's fine but as I go along and the people of Tama wanted to sell out because by this time there were four owners of Tama, he would say I would have the first right to buy them out so that I could equal myself better and better and be a more of an ownership of Tama. That's incredible. So he was actually looking for another job in San Francisco and then when the owners found out, his work was so valuable to the company that they offered him shares to keep him. That's unheard of. And I think that, that that's really fascinating to me because that, because that just goes to show how big of a difference someone can make in a business. And when you're invaluable, owners want to keep you and they want to make you feel more invested. Especially in those days, Alex, because good employees were very, very hard to find. He knew quite a bit about that type of business. Uh, anyway, he stayed there with them. And as time marched on there, uh, one of the old original owners wanted to get out, and he had the right to buy him out, but he didn't have the money to buy him out entirely. 
So he was put up the amount of money and bought a, another little piece of the shares, and then he had 35 or 40 shares in the company. My father never owned over 75 shares of the company. He got to the, that point there, and he stayed there for many, many years. Then when I came along and I started working for Tama, I was going to stay there and work just for one year because I needed some money to buy an automobile. And how did and how did you hear about the job at Tama? Did your dad say we're hiring? You should come work at Tama. Well, my dad said uh, when I told him that I wanted a car, he said, "Well, <laughs> you can have a car, but you're going to pay for it." <laughs> so I said, "Oh, that's okay." And I found myself in a little debt, and so I had to keep on working at Tama to pay off the car, and I, my intention was to go back to college. Well, that never happened, because after I stayed at Tama for a year or two, I liked the work, I liked the position, I enjoyed the company, I enjoyed being with my father and working with him every day, and we just kept on going that way until uh, the opportunity came up where I told my father, I said, listen, we have to make a move here. We have to buy into this company now because we are building, we're building the equity of this company. It's going to be more valuable as we go along. And then after we build the company up, we're going to have to end up paying a higher price for it. So I said, we're going to pay with work, and we're going to pay with sweat afterwards and mm. dollars. So my dad agreed to that, and so we had a meeting at Tama, and they allowed us to buy at the time more shares. I had saved up some money and took all the money I had and all the money that my father had, and we put it into Tama, and we, the combination of he and I, we had a hundred shares of Tama out of the 400 shares. So we were making some headway, but we had a long way to go yet. Uh, as we went along a little bit further, the owners got a little bit older and some of them wanted to get out and retire. And it got to the point where we bought another 50 shares of Tama and we own 150 shares of Tama. And then we had my mother-in-law that was the originator of the business. She had 150, we had 150, and there was a fellow named Joseph Pagliano that owned 100. So we had 300 between the two of us, and Mr. Pagliano was the 400 shares. And that went on for several years, and Mr. Pagliano got to be at an age where he was about 80 years old, and he was time for him to move on. And you all were able to have the first option to purchase these shares because of that deal your father negotiated early on. Exactly right. Okay. That was always present there. And 
the day came where Pagliano was getting bought out by then Mrs. Musadi's son-in-law, who was running her part of the business, and me. So when we were going to buy these shares out, Mr. Pagliano and Mr. Shattuck was his name, did not get along. Mr. Pagliano and Mr. Shattuck didn't even speak to each other hardly. So I had run the business quite a while by myself because if one said one thing, the other one went the opposite way, and then I did what I wanted to. <laughs> so I was in a good position. Mr. Pagliano and I, I got along fine with him, and I got along fine with Bob Shattuck. And, but when the day come, Mr. Pagliano says, all right, you guys want to buy me out? He says, fine. He looks at me, and he says, I sell my shares to you, and you alone. And at this point, he was the only partner left whose shares you didn't own. Is that correct? That is correct, and which would have made me 250 shares, and then the other 150 was in their hands, I would have had the controlling interest of the company way back then. And how long had you been at Tama at this point? 25 years. Wow. So I told Mr. Pagliano, I appreciated him making me that offer, but I did not want to do anything to an existing partner that we had been together. All of us have been together so many years. And that would be a, a pretty dirty trick to, to do. And I just said, no. I said, what we have to do here is you have 100 shares, 50 to me and 50 to the Shattucks, and we each had 200 shares that made up the 400 shares, and I was half owner of Tama. Well, now we became 50-50 partnerships in the company, and that went on for a couple of years, and then Bob Shattuck, Shattuck my partner, had a heart attack. Oh, and he was off work for six months. And I ran the company by myself. And he then came back to the company, worked about a month there, and then had a reoccurrence of a heart problem. And the doctor told him, you have to retire and get out of the company. You cannot be under any stress at all. What did he do next? Did he quit? Did he offer to sell his shares? Well, we had it set up that every January we would have a meeting with he and I, and we had it so that we would establish a buy and sell agreement and what the stocks were worth. And so if something should happen to he or I myself, that the women in the family, his wife and my wife, would have a set figure of how they would buy or sell the remaining stocks. And this was agreed upon every January. We had just got the stocks evaluated there, and all of a sudden he wants to bail out of this thing. So I said, fine. I uh, said... Uh, 
we have established the price on it, and I will pay you the established price. At this time, he decides that his stocks are worth more than what we agreed upon. Mm. And this kind of made it a little bit of a problem. And the next thing I know, he has got an attorney involved in the situation. I was kind of taken with that, and I said, why are you getting an attorney when we have an agreement on this? And why do you have an attorney, and you're now forcing me to have an attorney? And I said, I don't think we have any need for this. Well, he said, no, I want to have this attorney. looks over, and the attorney says that uh, the stocks are worth more money and everything. So to be fair about the whole thing, Bob had three sons that were, had two of them had worked at Tama before. And I told him, well, you do have two sons. Now, I'll tell you what we can do here. You can buy me at that price, or you can sell them at that price, but that's the price. Oh, that was that's smart. So in other words, he was going to be forced to come up with a number that was fair in the event he didn't want to go too high because then he would be overpaying. Exactly. So I gave him the option of buying or selling or doing what he wanted, but at that price, because I was willing to take the set price. So we went back and forth along that for, oh, I don't know, a month or so. And finally, uh, he agreed that he would sell out his stock and to show good faith in, in it, I did give him a little bit more money than we agreed upon just to make him go away. In doing this, to buy out half a Tama, which by this time had picked up some pretty good volume and was worth a lot more than it did in the old days. So it was quite a lump sum of money, and I did not have the cash. How did you manage to pay him off? I went down to the Bank of America, which we were very friendly with and knew because we uh, knew all of the workers at the Bank of America. And as you know, the Bank of America one time was the Bank of Italy. So they were all Italians down there, and we all knew each other. And, and I went to Mr. Grosso, and I got a line of credit. And so when he gave me the line of credit, I went in and I told him, Mr. Grosso, I'm going to give my partner a check. It was a large sum of money, but they were covering it with my line. And I said, you expect a telephone call from Bob Shattuck because he doesn't think that I have the money to buy him out, and he would rather force liquidation so he could get more money. So I said, he will call you and ask you if the check's any good. I can still remember this very clearly. I walked in, wrote him a check, a private check, and handed it to him. And he said, what is this? And I said, that's 
the amount of money you need to buy you out, and that's it. He was shocked that I had that kind of money and goes into the outer office and calls the bank. <laughs> Just like you knew he would. Oh, I knew he would, and he, he called his attorney, and then he called the bank. The attorney told him, don't take a personal check. Take a, you'll only take a certified check from him. So what had happened, uh, he came back and he says, my attorney advises me to take a certified check. Well, I hate to tell you what I told them, and I probably cannot say what I told them. <laughs> yes, you can say it. <laughs> I told them, after all of these years that our families have been together, and we worked together 25 years, you and I, you don't know who in the hell I am? And I said, you don't know where you can find me? And you don't know that I'm a person that's going to give you a personal check and you think it's no good? And he says, well, I'm only doing what the attorney's telling me to do. So he goes in and calls Mr. Grosso up, and just like I told Mr. Grosso that he was going to call. When he called, Grosso didn't even bother looking at the count because he knew the check was good because he was the one that okayed the money. So Mr. Shattuck said to him, I got a check here for X amount of dollars from Will Sorrow, a personal check. And Mr. Grosso says, and how much is it for? And he gives him the number. And he says, "Where's the, what's the problem? And Mr. Shattuck says, well, I want to know if this check's any good. He says, bring it in, we'll cash it. <laughs> and that was a shocker for him. And that was the end of the partnership there. We made the stock swap and everything. And I became the sole owner of Tama and the 400 shares. And uh, I took the company over. And uh, I was so happy because this is the first time that I could run the company without asking anybody what I could do, what I should do. I made all the decisions. Right or wrong, I made the decisions. I probably got the best education I could possibly have from mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes, but I did never made a mistake twice. And that was a, a learning curve that I learned to live with. So, and so at this time, you guys are primarily focusing on Italian food. Yes. Okay. Now, back then, we mainly had uh, Italian delis. And at one point, I start looking at the whole overall picture of the thing, and we started getting into a lot of restaurant business. And I noticed when people had money, they went out and ate at the restaurants. When people didn't have money, they went to the stores and bought stuff at the store and brought it home. Mm. So I didn't care if they ate at the restaurant. I didn't care if they ate at home as long as they ate our foods. <laughs> so I had structured our company in 
of retail and 50% of institutional restaurant. So as, as one would go up, the other one would come down and vice versa, but we kind of straight-lined and, and maintained our sales evenly throughout. Well, that's, that's fascinating. How did you develop those insights? How did, wh how did you come up with that? Were you looking at a spreadsheet one day and it dawned on you? Or is it some, you know, thinking about diversifying your, your clients, wholesale versus restaurants? Well, it got to the point that uh, I looked at the whole situation. And as we were selling to delis only, we did not have any restaurant business at all at one time. A few pizzerias, and that was about it. I figured out that with our economy, the way it would fluctuate, going up and down, so did the business and so where the clientele was going, and there was a reason for it. They had money, they went out and spent it. They didn't have money, they stayed home and ate at home. And again, uh, I was watching it and I had a chart that I looked at and I could see where our economy was just by looking at how much sales I had in retail versus institutional. So you actually started to notice a correlation between the two. Exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. But the, the beauty of the thing was we were doing X amount of dollars a month business and as the economy was going up and down, in the, especially it had an effect to the food business, as it was going up and down, Tama sat in the middle all the time and had this about basically the same sales always. When we put on more business, we increased our business. And uh, we, we follow that policy pretty much the same. I look at things, and I always looked at the marketplace, and I always kept an open mind to where we were at the time and what the economy is doing. I figured that our business was changing year after year, and you have to stay up on top of it, and you have to make those moves that go along with what's happening. What were some of those changes that you were witnessing early on after owning the business outright? We, we got to the point where, well, like for instance, I'll give you right up to today. In today's market, we see a whole bunch of the delis disappearing. They're either sandwich shops now, but they're not delis like they used to be. And the newer generation... The old timers went to Italian deli because that's all they would buy is Italian food. Well, the new generations, they don't go to Italian delis too much uh, for product. They go to the supermarket, and the supermarket has a little variety of Italian stuff in there, and they have an Italian section and everything. But the delis that are still existing have specialty items in there that they cannot find in the supermarket and they still stay active enough, but the young generation, they go in and they can get tomatoes or tomatoes to them. Uh, prosciutto is prosciutto to them, where the deli is specializing in a Parma imported prosciutto, which is an upgrade thing. 
the true Italian knows that. And the same thing with the tomatoes, between a round tomato and a plum tomato. So they know their food still, but it's wearing thin as it goes along. And one of the things that I was thinking of is people look at time is money, and women do not shop like they used to shop and go and spend a half a day picking out the food that they want. So as the business is changing, even now today, we are making a move to go along and go directly to the end user and skirt the Italian deli because they're no longer, as we know it as an Italian deli, there are sandwich shops, and you cannot make a full living off of a sandwich shop. So the thing to do is make it available to the public. And this is where we're designing and moving on to it. I stay active in the business in the background because I've been retired now, but I've always been there with suggestions I've always been there to see where the trend is going, and I always manage to put in my two cents. <laughs> and that, being able to do that is a gift in and of itself. Being able to identify an upcoming trend, a food item or a food line that you think is going to do well. How would you go about picking new food items to import to the United States that had never been imported here before? Was it off of the flavor, the presentation, a combination of things? Well, more or less, Alex, the uh, combination of things, because there are people out there that are always looking for something different. You don't eat spaghetti and meatballs uh, seven days a week. So they're always looking for something different. And, and especially when you get into the gourmet end of it, and one of the big things that we have in our favor, and I've always looked at this, is the world has got smaller. And what I mean by that, people are traveling more. And people that go to Italy get exposed to the Italian food, and they eat things they never had before. When they come back home, they start looking for those things. They want them. And you don't find them in a the supermarket. They go back to an Italian deli or they come to a Tama that is over there that they know on the Internet they can buy the products they're looking for and have it shipped to them. So that's the next step that I foresee. And the longevity of Tama is doing the Internet and shipping a lot of this stuff out and make it available because there are several places that may have one deli in a little town or no deli in a little town. And these people want to get the product, so they have a TAMA they can pick up, order through them, and get it shipped to them and have what they want. So TAMA, I think, is going to be an important thing in the future to the individual. Now, we have maybe a thousand customers 
why not have millions of customers and that would be the population directly right direct to consumer via online sales absolutely so it's another way it's another way of changing uh the way we do business and it's the thing of the times and these are the things that you have to look forward to and keep an open eye on and see where the trend of the business is going how you can benefit out of it and i i think this is a good direction to go in i always told my son always listen to me listen to every word i say now you don't have to do what i say just listen to me maybe it'll give you another way of looking at the same situation and there may be a plus or a minus there it may save you a couple of mistakes that i made but another way of looking at it the things that you think that you can benefit by or the vision that i gave you the look at things if they can help you use them if they can't throw it out but at least i mentioned to him and he has 60 years of experience behind him that I put out there that I've been involved in this business. Right, and I I absolutely love that. And I I think it's really cool how your father started at the business the first day it was ever open, then you two worked together for a while, and then you eventually ended up owning the business outright. Now your son is working with the business, and then just most recently, your grandson. So this is four generations of your family and business together and all this experience to share and learn from. How does it feel to be a part of this now seeing the fourth generation of your family in business? This is probably the greatest thing that could have happened to me. We have now 102 years of being in business and four generations. And the fourth generation is coming in with an open mind on this and I talk to my grandson and give him the same encouragement and the same information I've given my son. And again, look at it, say, well, okay. And then look at it and say, you know what? That's, that's obsolete. You know, forget about it. But at least they know I will never tell them something that will hurt them only to benefit with them. If they can make use of that knowledge, fine. If they cannot make use of it, throw it aside and forget about it. And uh, I'm not one to come over there and pound on the table and say, you have to do this, you should do this. No, maybe you ought to take a look at this. Maybe you guys should really give this some consideration, see what you think about this. Those are the suggestions that I uh, gave to them. I kept a very open mind of where the marketplace was because the market, from the day that we opened up the doors of Tama until now, have constantly changed. And uh, I think, to me, let me put this to you. Alex, when we talk about Tama Trading Company, I always tell the family, 
the golden egg of this family is Tama Trading Company. Everything that we have was brought about with Tama. Tama provided us with a beautiful family. They provided us with college educations. They provided us uh, with weddings and what have you, and just on and on. And everybody in our family is successful from Tama. So it's, I take very strong offense when anybody ever says anything negative, especially in the family about Tama. Because I said, you're here and you are where you are because of the golden egg, Tama Trading Company. And I think if it's taken care of, uh, there's no reason why it shouldn't go on for generation after generation. And I think that uh, my life here after 86 years pretty well fulfilled with what I accomplish. Alex, I always said, and my wife has said to me, my God, you didn't even have an education, no college education or anything, and look what you were able to accomplish. And I always said, a lot of common sense. And I said, that's the main thing, and be street smart. Be honest, pay your bills, get paid. And I said, you'll always hear, if you ever hear a bad thing about Tama Trading Company, it's because somebody has owed them money and we asked them for money and they get mad. They get mad because we asked for our money, not their money, and they still get mad. So if somebody says something negative about Tama, Rest assured, 99% of the time, it's sitting there because they didn't pay their bill. Mm, it's it's so true. My aunt always says that. She says, when you lend people money and it's time to collect, the people that you lent the money to are going to act like you're taking it from them. Yes. And that's where my saying comes in. I'm not asking for your money. I'm asking for my money. You know, I'm not taking anything from you. I just want back what is mine. And if you sell somebody boxes or cases or whatever you sell them, that represents dollars and cents. The difference between Tama and a bank is the exact same thing. They give you money and we give you boxes, but it's all money. I know you, you brought in Nutella to the United States. Is that correct? That is true. That is such a sensational product. And how did you find Nutella and see that as a good opportunity? When I went to Italy one time, the Italians used to use quite a bit of Nutella. But in the United States, they did not use a lot of Nutella. And these were things that when I went around to Italy and went to the food shows, and I went to, I used to go back every year to the Parma food show in Italy, I was always looking out for something new and different that made us stand out new and different. I brought into this country Nutella. I brought into this country Morto and Alamagna Panettone. I brought into this country ridiculous lettuce, 
out of Pioggia, Italy, because it had a short lifetime in it and had to be air freighted in. But I got it here today. You don't find a salad almost without radicchio lettuce in it. And I brought in the first pound of Barilla pasta into the United States. Oh, wow. And what do you call it? And Barilla's number one pasta in the world now. But in the United States, they did not sell one pound. And I brought it in and got the sales up that we were selling 93 containers, 40,000-pound containers a year. That's almost two containers a week. 80,000 pounds a week of Barilla pasta. I can't even begin to fathom what 80,000 pounds of pasta looks like. And they, they, Barilla, were so shocked with this number and everything, they had uh, a special uh, meeting of all the distributors throughout the United States on top of the the towers, the twin towers in the restaurant up there, and they took over the restaurant and honored Tama Trading Company as the leading distributor in the United States. And they referred to us as the father of Barilla in the United States. <laughs> and uh, I had, at that time, I wanted to give my son and my vice president a little boost, I let them go up and collect the prize, and I stayed out of the picture. And uh, uh, it, was a, it was a beautiful night and everything. I brought in several things that uh, Bertoli olive oil, one of the first guys that brought in Bertoli olive oil. Rufino wine, one of the first ones to bring in Rufino wine. We brought in... The infused oil uh, throughout the United States was brought in because I went over there and I saw a guy with a tank full of olive oil and full of basil. And they were making a thing which they call pesto genoese, which is basil and olive oil. And I looked at that thing, and I asked the guy, I said, what do you do with that oil after you're through with it? He says, we use it just for a preservative. For the basil, we dump it. And I said, you dump it? I said, I'll tell you what, bottle it for me. You can bottle it instead of dumping it. And the guy says, what? He kind of looked at me and said, what are you going to do with this? I said, just bottle it for me. And he put it in a 17-ounce bottle. And I started selling, and we called it the infused olive oil. And then I got him to make a lemon olive oil, a pepper olive oil, a rosemary olive oil. Well, there were seven different olive oils infused. And we were selling 40-foot containers of this oil because the product he sold it to me at almost nothing. And we were had a new item that we could double our price with the thing. And there was a broker here who went back and told him, do you know that they're doubling their price on this thing? 
When the broker told him that, then he put the price up on it and <laughs> killed the sales on the thing. But we, we were doing a lot of uh, things like that. Prosciutto is a well-known item in the United States. But prosciutto had a pork sickness to it. And for 30 years, they did not bring in imported prosciutto or any kind of pork at all. Salami, mortadella, all the cold cuts, they did not bring them in from Italy because of the swine sickness. I went back and talked to the people in Parma, Italy, about what was going on there. And they said, well, they said this and that and that and, and everything. And so I got with a food and drug and talked to them. I said, it's been 30 years since this has been going on and, and the pork sickness has all been cured. If it's properly cured, there should not be a problem. Well, the food and drug said, well, okay, we can try it out and we will send it to the United States and open up only for prosciutto, not salami or anything else, just prosciutto. Well, prosciutto is a natural cured product. It's a raw piece of pork, which is cured with salt and atmosphere and this and that, and usually aged at least 400 days. They gave me all these specs and everything. The prosciutto manufacturer said to me, what happens if we send the prosciutto over there and the food and drug doesn't pass it over there, then we're stuck with a, uh, an item that's $12 a pound over in America, we have to pay the freight back over here both ways, and uh, they were just not willing to take that chance. The food and drug would not give us a guarantee of the product. So then I told the food and drug, listen, to get this thing started, getting a large industry going again, why do you not have a member of the United States Food and Drug over in Italy. If it passes in Italy, ship it. Then it doesn't have to go through customs here. And this avoids the problem of it sitting out too long and going bad by the time it gets to America. Not only that, but it automatically passes food and drug here because it's already been okayed over there. So that got the prosciutto going. And so I was instrumental in having this product brought in here. Today, we uh, Italy ships in here salami, mortadella, prosciutto, all these items because I got started up and come up with a suggestion of, of having the food and drug approve it over there. And how, how do you feel that having this type of mind, Will, just being able to see a process and identify problems in the process and then just be willing to be creative and identify a solution in it. How do you feel that this has served you both in life and business? When we got that a prosciutto approved, for an example, we were the only ones that knew about it because we had the thing approved. Well, all of a sudden here, Tama again, number one, 
had all the Italian prosciutto you could get, and they, the delicatesses, only bought imported Parma prosciutto, needing Tama again. Always a need for something to go through Tama. Always tried to be a leader in any product, whether it be the ridiculous lettuce, whether it would be, be the prosciutto, whether it was the wine, the olive oil, on and on and on. And, and I was always, always looking for new items. And my son today is constantly looking at specialty items. He's looking for items that you cannot go to the supermarket and find. You have to go to a specialty place. And it's to create a name for the item. But after that product gets on the market and we start selling it, through the internet, that will build the volume up tremendously. What has been your biggest lesson in business that you've learned? Work hard, be honest, be fair, have a good product, have a good price. And I always told my salespeople, you tell the customer right off, that you're going to give them good service, you're going to give them good products, you're going to give them a good price. And they have, that's three items that we will do to make a good relationship, and one on your part, pay me within terms, and we'll have the best relationship you can ever imagine. And if I fall down on the service, the quality, or the price, let me know, and we will see of correcting the problem. If you don't pay me on time, shame on you. And I said, be very gentle with that, how you put it to them, but let them know that we'll be a good supplier if they're a good payer. Very funny in business, in almost any kind of business, People don't like to pay their bills. And one of the things that they have, they'll always have a bookkeeper that will be telling them, can't you drag your feet an extra week here? And can't you, can't you put these guys, instead of uh, paying them in, in 10 days or 15 days, pay them in 30 or 60 days? So it's a, lot of, a lot of the, the accountants create this problem. But if you get there and you... you let them know the way it is right off. Well, you know, then they say to the accountant, I can't do that with these people. We have an agreement there, and we already know where the game is. So I can't do that. Maybe I can do it with somebody else, but can't do it with these people. Yeah, identify that problem as soon as it starts and oh, end yeah. it there. And if you could go back and speak to your younger self right before you started out in your career and offer yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? You know, that's, Alex, that's kind of a hard question because it's a multiple things that you put together that makes one special thing. And it's a combination of hard work, honesty, all the things that I have described there. And when you get the whole package together, that's the main thing. 
if you're honest, people like to deal with honest people. If you have the greatest products and the leaders and things, they want your products there. So all of these things in the service, they open, nobody likes to open their restaurant up and have a customer come into their location and not have what they need, need on the menu. So the service has got to be good and the product has got to be there and you have to service them the best you can. And uh, when you have a happy customer and we're happy with him, it really makes for a good relationship. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Will. I really appreciate you coming on. That was an, an amazing conversation. Well, Alex, I was happy to do the interview with you. And I hope this will serve you well in some way. And uh, I pretty much gave you uh, my life with Tama Trading Company, my father's, and uh, also my future of my son and my grandson. And by the way, I cherish the thought that my grandson finally came to work at Tama. He doesn't realize it, but he made me such a great feeling that I have the fourth generation working there, and I am so pleased with that, but I'll never tell him. <laughs> but uh, he will take it to the next level. With my son and him, uh, they will take another step forward. And uh, I'll stick around for a while just to make sure they make that right step. And there you have it. The inspiring journey of a true visionary, Mr. Will Sorrow, whose unwavering commitment to excellence and innovation has left an indelible mark on the world of food distribution. From the humble beginnings of a family legacy that started over a century ago, Will's story is a testament to the enduring power of dreams and determination. It's not every day that you hear about a young man and father who, through sheer dedication and hard work, gradually acquired the company they were working for. A company that wasn't just a business, but a part of their family's heritage. As we conclude this episode of From Vision to Creation, let us take a moment to reflect on the incredible story of Will Sorrow. His resilience and willingness to go beyond the ordinary have shown us that dreams can be achieved, legacies can be preserved, and the impossible can be made possible through hard work and dedication. So as you go about your day, remember that Will Sorrow's journey is a reminder that you can turn your dreams into reality and make an impact in the world. And whether you are in the food industry looking to expand your product offerings, or are just a curious foodie who wants to try new Italian specialty products, head over to tamatrading.com to check out a few of the hundreds of delicious items they offer. I'm including the link to their website in the episode notes. Thank you, Will Sorrow, for sharing your incredible story with us today. Your legacy and brilliant mind have left us with an unmeasurable amount of inspiration. Tama's story is proof that one person's hard work and vision can not only shape industries, but the trajectory of an entire family for generations to come. <laughs>